Hey there, how's it going? Welcome to the Paro Theology Industrial Complex uh, in my house in LA. I'm actually moving um, in a couple of weeks, so you won't see this incredible background anymore. Um, I'm going to hopefully stay in LA, but uh, I'm going to find an apartment. Uh, so it's going to be sad to miss this place. I love it. I like this place. Um, if any of you have any good tips about where I should live, uh, let me know. Um, some of you tuned in there and I was starting up a video and then I got an email from my friend Padre Gutuma with important information that I wanted to include in this uh, Facebook Live. So I've got the information uh, and I'm back. So please do say hi. Let me know where you're, you're coming in from. Um, please give me your thoughts and your comments um, because after this video is finished, those remain and people can be you know, part of an ongoing conversation. What I want to chat about today is an interesting phrase that is used in Ireland to talk about bereavement. If you've ever been at an Irish funeral, someone will come up if, uh, if someone you know has died and they will say, uh, sorry for your troubles. It's an interesting phrase, sorry for your troubles. Um, and the reason, um, this is why I was interested in talking to my friend Podrick, because he, he's an amazing poet, incredible musician, and he wrote a book of poetry called uh, Sorry for Your Troubles. And um, he says that in Irish, the word for bereavement uh, can be translated as trouble. So instead of saying, you know, sorry for your loss or anything like that, this Irish word, which is uh, trebloid, uh, I think I'm pronouncing it, vaguely correctly, um, means bereavement or more, more poetically troubles. And uh, it's interesting because it's saying that your life has gone through uh, disruption. You have been disoriented, that warders are not calm in your life. Things have shaken you up. And, uh, and interestingly, the conflict uh, in Northern Ireland was called the Troubles. Uh, typical Irish uh, underplaying, you know, a 30 year bloody conflict with so many dead and injured and so much trouble, but we call it the Troubles. Um, and it's a way of saying bereavement, loss, violence, destruction. Um, <coughs> now, interestingly, whenever our lives go through troubles, uh, one of the things that we do in order to protect ourselves from the disturbance that's going on is we engage in a defense mechanism that's called splitting. Splitting is where you take a complex situation and you reduce it to a simple goody and body. Um, I am right and the other person is wrong. Uh, there, there's a book called Why Do I Do That by Joseph um, Burgo and he has an example of splitting which I think you know, helps to express the mechanism. He talked about a family he knew uh, whose son was murdered by this uh, drug cartel. And what happened is the family all gathered around. They all sought justice for this murder. And uh, eventually the person was caught and put to trial. But during this, one of the family friends said to them, Listen, you know, your son was no angel. Uh, he was part of the same group. 
he was dealing drugs. He was, he was part of that underworld. Now, at that time, the family could not cope with that kind of idea. So they said, like, you're no longer a friend. They, they kind of excommunicated them from their circle. Because, in a sense, the family needed to think of their son as good and pure and innocent. This is splitting. You know, the world is evil out there and our child, you know, was, was an angel. And that's completely fine. That is a way for a family to unify at a terrible time to get the strength to go through this court case and to get justice. But once everything had happened, then the family were able to let the defense mechanism of splitting lure and they were able to begin to um, accept uh, a more nuanced view of the world that their son was not completely innocent and that actually the situation was more complicated than they had at first admitted. Now, this is not a case of them getting new information. It's not a case of somebody coming along and saying, listen, look at the evidence, right? It was already known, but it was being repressed. So that's what defense, the defense mechanism of splitting does. You, 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 you uh, avoid thinking about the more complex issues and you create a very simple black and white world of goodies and baddies. I mean, another example politically would be during the Second World War, uh, the Germans were seen as evil, as bad, and the Allies as good. Uh, and th anyone who came in and said, well, actually, you know what, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, look at the Treaty of Versailles. Look at all of the, 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 um, the uh, constraints we put on Germany. Look at the economic situation. Uh, we are actually a part of what's happening there. Well, if you said that during the war, chances are you would lose your job, you could be put in prison, because it is not a point where people can hear that kind of subtlety. It's very, very difficult to do when someone is having those troubles and that disturbance in their life or in their community or in their country. Now, one of the problems with splitting, and, and war is the ultimate type of splitting, uh, is that there is no novelty. There's lots of issues and lot that come up, but one of them, and I think one of the most important, is in splitting, no novelty can arise. And what I mean by that is, when you create a world of enemies and friends, you just want to crush your enemy. They've got nothing good to say. Uh, there's no reason to listen to them or to listen to their anger or their frustration or their fears. And you are the good and you are the pure. And, you know, you, you, you have the right answer. So nothing happens. It just, you solidify two camps and the conflict continues to happen. That's why, you know, I quote the Irish comedian uh, Dylan Moran, who once said, uh, war is not conflict. War is the inability to have conflict. Because in a war, you do not want to sit in a room and fight with somebody and argue and have conflict. You want to just kill them. You just want to get rid of them. You just think they're all bad. And if you could, you would just, if you could, had a gun, you would shoot them. Or if you're a nicer person, you would want them to be raptured into the sky, taken out of the world and create purity. Now, this is connected loosely with something that has been called the beautiful soul. And the beautiful soul describes a developmental phase where we split the world into good and bad. 
and we put the bad out there and we see ourselves as good and pure. We have an idealised view of ourselves. This is the phase where a child will say, for example, there's a monster outside the window. You know, I, I heard the monster, I saw the monster. Now, in a sense, that monster is not, of course, outside the window. Unless, um, just watched Alien vs Predator and there was a monster outside the window. But most of the time, the monster is not outside the window. The monster is in the child. It is the child's fears, uh, concerns, repression, all of that stuff is put out into the world to create a sense of internal purity. And of course, part of developing is to see that and to realize that and to work through that part of ourselves. In many respects, tarrying with it throughout the rest of our lives. So the beautiful soul, it's not just a developmental phase, it's something that you can see in adulthood that, that happens when we experience troubles. We go, we are pure, we are good, we are right. And they, whoever they are, are the evil and the bad. In Northern Ireland, for example, depending on what side you were on, the IRA were freedom fighters or terrorists. The British army were there to protect the people or they were a colonial army there to police and terrorize citizens. And for years, for 30 years, there was no uh, subtlety. There was no ability to listen to the other. The other was an absolute enemy. But eventually, eventually, both sides began to realize that forced progress and, and novelty to arise. And by novelty, I mean the ability to dream up new worlds, new possibilities, new ways of living. They had to open up to the possibility that they, the other had something to say, that, that the other had some legitimate concerns and fears. Now, they didn't have to say it was all good. In fact, not at all. It was like 99% of what you think is wrong and terrible and bad. But it was like, but maybe there's 1%. Maybe there's something that we need to listen to. And then both sides were able to lower the defense mechanism. And we could talk about how they did that. It's a long, complicated process. But the process of lowering those defenses just enough to let a little bit of light in to let a little bit of genuine conflict happen, sitting around a table, actually looking at the other and going, okay, I'm not gonna try and just kill you or pretend you don't exist. Pretend that your state is so far away that I don't have to think about you. I don't have to care about you. I'm actually gonna listen. And that led eventually to the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement signed in 1998. At the moment, there is a lot of troubles. A lot of people are feeling disoriented um, concerning what's happening uh, in the US at the moment where I spend a lot, of, a lot of my time. And there is a tendency to engage in splitting. And that is completely reasonable. That is completely fine. Um, that has to be expressed. And in fact, if you come in too quick and start to try to be the person you know, saying, oh, we have to listen to the other side, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that can actually just increase the, the defense mechanism and cause more problems. Um, people have legitimate fears on all sides. 
um, and concerns about this country. Um, people are more split potentially than ever. I saw um, one survey saying like basically half of Democrats think that Republicans are a serious danger to their country and about half of uh, uh, Republicans think that Democrats are a serious uh, problem to the country. This is a dangerous splitting. Um, but those who are working for real change are, need to be the ones who can name this splitting. Often the first thing you do is you simply name it. You simply name what's going on. And also who try to work to gradually reduce that defence mechanism just enough so that people can go, maybe the other side isn't all evil and disgusting and wrong. Maybe they have legitimate fears. Maybe they've been left behind by the political process. Maybe they have no access to education, to jobs. They've seen their families, they've seen their communities devastated and left behind. And so maybe actually, instead of ignoring that, laughing at it, pretending it doesn't exist, we need to actually ask ourselves, oh, is there something in that that we need to listen to? And if we listen to that, is there some way of moving forward together? At this point, novelty arises. And novelty is another word in the sense for politics. Politics is, in some respects, the art of dreaming up new worlds and new possibilities, which can only happen when, when the defence has, has been lowered enough. A lot of people today, at the moment, um, are feeling a certain amount of uh, loss of hope. Um, uh, you know, some people were thinking, oh yeah, things are moving forward. Uh, you know, changes are happening that I'm pleased with. And, and I, I can see a legitimate death of a certain type of hope. But actually, it might be the death of a, of a, of a bad hope. Because there's two types of hope. There's the hope that things are going to work out right at the end. And you just sit back, drink your cup of coffee and, you know, let the chips fall. Because you're going like, yeah, no, I, I feel everything's moving ahead. Right? But then there's a type of hope where, you say, for example, you hope that your child is going to go to college. That's a hope that demands your action. That's a hope that demands you save money. It's a hope that demands that you, you know, start you know, looking at where to live, uh, reading books to your child, all of these various things that you have to do. You realise that the hope that you have is something that requires you put your shoulder to the wheel and you push and you work and you fight. And you know, that type of hope um, is alive and well. And we have to cultivate that. We have to fan it into more and more uh, life. So anyway, those are some of my kind of thoughts about what I'm seeing currently um, uh, in, in the US and, and on social media. This genuine, legitimate uh, tr troubles, experience of, <clears throat> of like fear and anxiety, but that sometimes the temptation is to split, to create a world of, of, of good and bad and paint everybody on the other side as terrible and evil. You have to have a very low anthropology to do that, especially in this situation, um, you know, if you paint everybody who voted for Donald Trump, for example, as, as racist, then that's a lot of people. <laughs> um, and 
if you or if you think that it's you know they're they're voting because uh, you know of sexism, misogyny, all of that. But even if that's the case, well, you can't stop there. I think then the question is, well, why is racism something that that exists? And that's a difficult question to ask because instead of stopping there, you go, oh, okay, have these communities got legitimate uh, grievances? Is there legitimate fears? Has there been a destruction of factories and the economy? And is there a wealth disparity that is just, you know, cancerous to, to the country or whatever? And then you go, okay, so there might be really legitimate concerns and angers and frustrations. And then what's happened is someone has given them a very easy target to, to you know, so this is displacement. Um, you know, if you come home from work and your boss has been shouting at you, but, you know, you can't shout back at your boss because you'll get fired. So you come back and you shout at your husband or your wife or whatever. That's displacement. You're taking anger, this legitimate anger and legitimate frustration, but you're putting it in the wrong place. You're putting it in the wrong place in that example because you're scared you're going to lose your job. But you can also put it in the wrong place because you don't know where you're supposed to direct it, but you have it. There is that legitimate anger and fear and frustration. And then someone comes along and says, well, direct it there, direct it to that community. That's the problem. Um, and in those situations, then the issue is actually to politicize communities, to try to help, um, you know, target this frustration in a way that is useful, that is productive, um, and that, that doesn't just simply create scapegoats. So that, that's my challenge to, to my friends and my community. I did this with Brexit. When Brexit happened, I could feel within myself this sense that, oh, this is a victory of those who hate immigrants. Uh, and it took some of my friends to talk to me and go, well, listen, hold on a second. You know, there's, there's a lot of legitimate anger and frustration in the UK, a lot of people who have felt left behind. And, and actually, just, just to say that is for me to avoid confronting the legitimate concerns that I have to listen to. This is a, a ray of light for me in the current situation is that I probably would not listen to the cry of those people who feel devastated by and left behind by the political establishment if their voice wasn't endorsed. Now I have to listen. Now we have to listen. We can't just pretend it doesn't exist or laugh at it or mock it or all the things that we might want to do. We have to go, oh, now we have to listen. So there's a, there's, a, there's a place of opportunity I see, and that opportunity is if we are able to very gradually over the next coming, over the coming months lower the defense of splitting and allow for little bits of novelty to come in, uh, allowing us to engage in a type of hope that demands that we create the alternative communities that, that we believe in. That's what I call liturgy, um, our church. But by the way, I don't mean that as what you do on Sunday morning. It could be a local bookshop that does events. It could be um, a local coffee shop. Uh, where, but a community, a commune, a commune, commune where people live out performatively the world that they would like to see. They, they performatively enact the eschaton. They performatively enact the world that they would like to live in, here and now, in the present. 
And if enough of us can do those things, that can really have you know, a positive impact on society. So, okay, there's some thoughts. I'll have a little look at some comments, see if there's any questions or thoughts. This, by the way, is a, a bit of a, a prelude to a conversation I had with Rob Bell yesterday and his podcast. It's coming out on Monday uh, where we both discuss this. So if you like these kind of thoughts, uh, go to his uh, podcast on Monday and you'll hear, um, you'll hear more about it. Okay, let's go. I'm very nervous, by the way. This, I have said very little because I know that even what I'm saying here could be, um, you know, seen and, and as, as negative and bad and et cetera, et cetera. So I, I say this in fear and trembling. Um, okay, comments and thoughts. Yeah, there's a lot of grief at the moment with the political stuff people are sharing. Uh, Carrie says, I think it's more about political oppression than people not being able to hear nuance. Um, political oppression. Yeah, that could be the case. You might have to say a little bit more for that just to, you know, give me more context. And even if I can't respond to you, it would be useful to hear what you think um, on the comment section. So please do write more of your thoughts. Uh, okay, yeah, Steve says, how would splitting play into the election protests and posture going forward? Um, well, yeah, I mean, in a sense, that's, that's what I'm wrestling with, Steve, as well, is, is what that looks like. Because I think there needs to be, I, I, I believe that people on all, on all sides need to be able to express their frustrations, their fears, their anger. And sometimes that will come out in ways that, you know, disrupt and disturb, and that is good. But what I'm interested in is what, what kind of like happens in the aftermath. For example, there's... What's interesting is people and students are protesting at the moment. They are actually getting on the streets, expressing themselves. I think that's amazing. I think that's really powerful. Um, and I believe that that will um, open up and lead to more nuance and discussion. Uh, I heard uh, there's a French philosopher, Alain Badiou, who I just heard a few days ago. He's speaking in L.A. And he was talking about war and politics and the connection between the two. Um, he, he was saying that in the 20th century, uh, this type of nuance and novelty that I'm speaking about, this type of creation of alternative communities that are local, that are equal, that are um, moving towards, um, you know, a, kind of a, a greater equality, um, they generally happen after war, after splitting. They generally, that's, you know, after this kind of, like, conflict, uh, whenever we get tired of that, then the alternative begins to rise. Now, he said, what we have to do is try to avoid have to, having to have the war before we have the nuance, right? That's, that's the real challenge, you know. But, um, uh, you know, in Northern Ireland, there's a 30-year war before we could begin to find a way forward together. And that's, that's devastating. I mean, imagine if we could have done that without the 30-year war. So the big thing for us, and I think if we want to be workers for real transformation in the world, is we have to find ways of, yes, having these revolutionary, insurrectionary um, collectives grow, but to try to avoid 
um, violence and death and destruction that often precedes that. And you know, maybe that's utopic, maybe that's impossible to do, but um, you know, that is the hope and that is that is the work, I guess, in many ways. Let's see. Lots of great comments and thoughts. Um, Yeah, here's something. Um, Kathleen Bulger, who I know well, hey, how's it going? Says, I wonder if it's a legitimate grievance for the perceived dominant group, white males, to grieve the loss of their political dominance. This, this that gets to the core of this because, in a sense, there is uh, a very, you know, that's one of the ways that this is being read. It's kind of this is like those people who are in power wanting to maintain power. I got to be honest. I think in this election, that's Hillary Clinton. Now, I, in the sense, and whether you whether you agree with her or not, I actually think that she was more beloved by Wall Street, the media, and kind of the intellectual elites of the country. You know, if you look at where the votes took place, it's of course the coastal things. It's where I live, LA, among my community, and I have to be honest, the people I hang around with are people who have influence. You know, not huge influence. I'm not hanging away, but but I but I am around people who have influence in terms of platforms. Uh, they are musicians, or they're actors, or they're making movies, or whatever. They're they are in a sense the powerful people in America, um, and you know all of them were 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 pro Hillary. I say there's nothing wrong or right about that. It's just the experience of um, most mostly it was the college educated, powerful people. And I actually do think that the reason why uh, Trump got in, I know there's a lot of debate about this, but is actually more because there are lo lots of people in rural areas um, who were voting for him. Lots of people who have no voice, who in LA we just laugh at. And we, uh, you know, there's all these jokes. Basically, they're hicks, they're rednecks, they're nobodies, they're nothings, they're, they're just racists. And I think there's a lot, a lot of those people were the ones who were showing up at Donald Trump rallies. I know some people who, who were at Donald Trump rallies to kind of like see what was going on. And, and you know, whatever the, the stats say, you know, the, the, the experience I could see or talking to some of my friends was that a lot of the people who were at those rallies are kind of the people who have no real power or education or money. And... And they have a legitimate grievance. So yes, I think absolutely. If there's people who are basically going, you know, uh, I'm trying to protect my piece of the pie, that's definitely a real problem. But what I want to do is go, okay, what if some of, even if it's only 5% of those who voted for Trump are people who have felt silenced by the system, who were w willing to, to explode it uh, rather than have more of the same, um, who didn't trust the media, who don't trust Wall Street, who don't trust the intellectual elites in this country, um, who don't trust Huffington Post and BuzzFeed and all of that. And and actually it's those ones who I'm interested in. So yeah, yeah, 
I mean, that sounds terrible. Kathleen, I think you're right. If if the vote was, oh yeah, we're trying to protect our money and our power, then yeah, that's that's really bad. But but my concern is actually that's that's one of the defences that's preventing us from the much more troubling and disturbing thing, which is oh actually large number of people in America feel hard done by and actually Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump very different in many respects but both of them symbolized an explosive in the political establishment and in a sense Hillary Clinton represented you know the ongoing political establishment um, that's why by the way as a, as a Bernie fan <laughs> um, I did feel that he was right from the start would have a better chance of having won um, against uh, Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, but anyway, that's all by the by. <laughs> okay. Um, there's lots of great thoughts and comments. As I say, my concern and my fear and my desire is is not to do a Facebook Live that 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 causes us to you know get defensive, but to to actually create a space where we can dialogue and and disagree and fight. Because as I say, and this is why the Irish are God's chosen people, by the way, it's because we love a good fight. You know, there's nothing like a good fight in an Irish pub where you argue, you shout at each other, you do all of that as part of the culture, right? The Irish and the Jewish, God's chosen people because we love a good fight. Israel means to fight, to fight with God, to wrestle. And the thing about splitting is splitting is war. Splitting is not conflict, splitting is war. And war is the inability to have conflict. When you lower splitting, that doesn't mean that you're not taking seriously conflict. It means you're going to take seriously conflict. It actually is going to happen. When you break up with someone, you can often split. Oh, that person I went out with, they were evil, wrong and bad and I was all good. But the problem is, if you cannot get over that eventually, it will destroy your life. You won't be able to move on. You won't be able to imagine new worlds, new relationships, new ways of moving forward. It's only as the defense goes down and allows you to work through the stuff with the other person, ultimately let them go so that you can move forward. So splitting is war, not conflict. Lower splitting so that real conflict can happen. The moment that we're fighting back and forth and willing to stay in the room and keep fighting is the moment when cracks of light happen, possibility enters, novelty enters. But of course, it's fire. This is fire. Fire warms you. And fire cooks your food. And fire can burn your house down and kill you. So I'm not saying that if, if well, we lower our defences and we engage in real conflict and real dialogue that everything's going to be great. Sadly not. That's, that's why I talk about hope as putting your shoulder to the wheel of history and pushing. Going, I hope we can make a better world. That keeps me alive. That feeds me. That drives me. But, you know, that hope is a fragile hope. It's a hoping against hope, as John Caputo would say. It's a hoping in the midst of darkness and despair that actually light and beauty can appear. So there you go. Thank you so much for, for tuning in um, and uh, be, be people of conflict, uh, be people of, of Israel to fight, Israel meaning to fight and to wrestle. And... Um, and, oh, can I say one more thing? Uh, this brings us to Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard I've been reading recently, and, and he talks about how the person of faith is one who, in a sense, is, is someone who embraces disturbance, 
the troubles, um, the weirdness, the paradox, the breakdown of your world. And partly because he says, because someone of faith um, is confronted with the infinite meeting the finite, um, the highest meeting the lowest, the, the, the absolute entering the grit and grime of the world. And that's, that just completely disturbs your head. So, you know, whenever your world is disturbed and disrupted, there is something about the life of faith in that and being able to, to embrace that and work within it. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Kierkegaard has something interesting to say about this. That could be the next Facebook Live. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. Um, have a great day and uh, continue, to, continue to fight for the good.